Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to CSIS. My name is Matthew Goodman. I uh, run the economics program here at CSIS. Delighted to welcome you here to this event on Cities of Tomorrow. Um, uh, also, by the way, welcome to our online viewers. We always have a good uh, turnout online, uh, so delighted to have you as well. Um, I um, will say a word about the event in a minute and, and then get on with the program, but just let me do the usual administrative announcements first. If you could uh, silence your phones, uh, and if there's any kind of incident, I'm your safety officer, follow me. Basically, there's a fire escape down through these doors, and we rally at National Geographic uh, a block behind it. We've never had any kind of incident, but just um, so you know. Um, and actually, that's enough administrative for now. So I'll just frame uh, the conversation today by saying that um, we at uh, CSIS and in our program, the Simon Chair, have been tracking uh, infrastructure, the infrastructure investment story, for three or four years now. We have a project called Reconnecting Asia. If you go to, uh, well, the URL is on the screen. Um, you'll see our map of the Eurasian supercontinent and behind it a database of about 14,000 infra hard infrastructure projects. Uh, we started with transport and energy projects and we're still building that out, but we've been increasingly interested in the digital infrastructure story, um, as has everyone, I think, on some level, uh, if you're reading the papers and keeping up. Um, and so uh, that led us to this topic of smart cities because uh, a lot of people are in engaged in this uh, activity of, of uh, smart cities, whatever that means. And we're going to, I hope, uh, in this panel um, discussion in a minute, we're going to define a little more clearly uh, for everyone, including me, uh, what exactly we're talking about here. But um, we um, have been so st starting a sort of set of a uh, series of um, events and uh, research efforts to try to understand better what the, what the opportunities are, what the risks are, the challenges, and how to manage those, and um, uh, what sort of the implications of all this is, particularly for economic activity. We're economists, so more than the geostrategic. Obviously, you're in a, in a national security-oriented think tank, so those dimensions are, of course, very important and interesting to us. But we're economists, and that's the first sensibility we bring to this, what's driving all this economically and what does it mean economically and commercially. Uh, so that's the background to this. We have a terrific group of, of experts um, to uh, help us all learn. Um, we're going to, as soon as I'm done, I'm going to introduce our keynote speaker and then um, uh, Dr. Rhee, and when he's finished, uh, my colleague John Hillman, who directs the Reconnecting Asia pro uh, project, will do a, a brief presentation, and then we'll have the panel led by our, our colleague uh, uh, Peter Raymond. Uh, and then we'll have some time for a question and answer so you can participate as well, which is an important part of this. So with that, uh, let me uh, introduce um, our keynote speaker, um, who uh, is Dr. Sakawuk Wu Rhee, who is the Associate Director for Cyber Physical Systems Innovation, and I'm sure he's going to explain what that means, um, at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, which is a really important but sort of unheralded or unknown um, part of the U.S. government. It's part of the Commerce Department. He may tell us a little more uh, about that. Uh, we had a chance, a few of us from CSIS with our CEO, John Hamry, a chance uh, just before Christmas to go out there and have a sort of field trip and visit some of the labs and uh, talk to some of the, uh, the experts there. Uh, and it was just fascinating and I learned as a citizen uh, how, uh, how much that organization is doing and how important that is building the kind of the, the basic 
infrastructure of standards and technology that underlies our, our, our economic you know, competitiveness, our economy. So um, it's, it's a really important place, and, and we're delighted that Dr. Ree could join us. And uh, I think with that, he's got the, 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 the requisite degrees in engineering from MIT. Uh, as you can see in the rest of his bio, uh, he's he's very distinguished uh, gentleman and has a lot of um, uh, uh, interesting um, uh, things he's working on that he's going to tell us about. So with that, Dr. Ree, please come up. So as we already have heard, my name is hard to pronounce, and my title is even more difficult to pronounce, so don't even try. And I'll explain what that means. Um, so I will go to the first one, which is my title. The Cyber Physical Systems Innovation, uh, it sounds complicated, but it's really smart cities and Internet of Things, IoT. That's what I do. And I work on, obviously, standards, but also market development and creating market consensus. So the first question I always get is, what is a smart city? What is a smart community? I mean, that's a complicated question, but because everybody may have their own definitions of that. But this is how we look at it. Again, I'm not saying that this is a D definition. This is one of many examples that how you can look at smart city. It is about cities and communities using smart technologies such as IoT or CPS to improve quality of life. That's the, the probably the most important thing that you have to, uh, you have to uh, remember, improving quality of life of the residents. That's what smart city is. Still, it's not very clear what that means. And one of the ways to look at it is in the layered structure. At the bottom of it, you have physical systems, sensors and actuators, but at the, at the same time, you have a large things like cars and airplanes and nuclear plants. Those are all the things that you can look at in a city and the communities. On top of that, there is a communication system, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, uh, or Zigbee cell network, things that, uh, something that you connect those things. Now, a lot of people misunderstand that IoT and smart city is only about those devices. They only look at those bottom two layers as their IoT components. That's completely wrong. There are two more components on top of it. One is about data, data collection, data analytics, and data uh, storage. That's on top of it. On top of that, which is the, probably the, the most important layer, which is a human and services. At the end of the day, you can collect all this data, but if you do not do anything with the data, that's pretty much useless. So what happens is with a human and service, sometimes automated, sometimes based on human decision, there is a decision made and there's a feedback loop that takes action. Action happens all coming down to physical systems. If you overlay this structure onto a city or a community, that becomes a smart city. So where are they? We talk about smart city all the time. So, okay, in the world, where are those smart cities? Uh, it's virtually impossible to say how many smart cities in the world is. This is more of a, a anecdotal evidence that, uh, that we have collected at NIST uh, for the last five, six years. So we have a program called the Global City Teams Challenge that identifies and creates uh, uh, partnerships and collaborations all globally, all around the world. 
Now, we identified around 200 uh, smart cities and smart communities projects around the world. And as you can see, and, and those are just a partial list, not the full list. And there are a lot of US cities, obviously, uh, but there's also cities in Europe, a lot of them. And there are Asia and some in Africa, too. Uh, so as you can see, there are large cities in our New York City and Los Angeles, but at the same time, there's smaller cities like Winooski, uh, Montgomery County, right over here. Actually, it's not that small, but it, it, is, uh, it is one of those smart communities projects they have. Uh, I don't have a Las Vegas over here, but they has to be here. Sorry about that. Uh, Las Vegas was, uh, again, this is a partial list. I randomly pull out of it. Now, we also work with about 500 companies and universities uh, involved at least one of these projects. What is very interesting, if you see this map, there are a lot of projects in North America. There are a lot of projects in Europe. Uh, but there's uh, very little in China, that's one, and Russia, that region, and also South America. Note that this doesn't mean that there are no smart city projects over there, okay? It simply means because they have not participated in the program that we have over here. Some studies have suggested that about half of the smart city projects in the world are in China, okay? And over $80 billion, again, there's some study, over 70 or $80 billion are spent in China for smart city projects. So. Uh, what you are seeing here is just a, a, what it means by smart city, but doesn't mean that this represents the proportion of the smart cities in the world. Now, let's talk about global perspective. There are many different models of a smart city. In Asia, very, these smart city projects are initiated very much in a top-down manner, meaning either national government or central government, they start planning they create a policy, sometimes legislation, and they assign budget for this. And then they push this money down to local governments in many cases, and they, local governments add money to it, and they simply implement smart city. Uh, actually, it's very efficient because there is very small number of decision makers at the end of the day. If the top government make a decision, things are gonna happen very quickly. In the US, it's a completely the other way around. Uh, it's very much a bottom-up approach. And that's related to the structure we have uh, in the United States, the federal governments, local governments. We are partners, uh, we are collaborators, but it doesn't necessarily mean that federal governments can tell local governments what to do, and they're gonna do it. So a lot of the work done in smart cities in the United States are very much a bottom-up. Meaning, local governments make the decision. They create this planning process. They work with the partners, private sector partners, most of the cases, to implement their smart city. Europe is very much of a mix of those. There are large number of uh, European initiatives on smart city, and there are also a lot of grassroots activities at the uh, local government level, too. Which one is the best in the, uh, of the three? We don't know yet. There is a pros and cons, and obviously, uh, but there's always common issues. The biggest issue that cuts across all these three models is the, uh, the problem of the fragmentation. Every city does their thing, as almost like one-off projects, because they rely on some funding and they do this project and say it's done. But that's not how cities work. Cities have to be planned 50 years, 
hundred years ahead, or you know, uh, looking at the, that level of the, the time frame. So in many cases, uh, th there's one of projects, and every, everybody does their own thing. It lacks well-established practices and uh, processes and best practices. As a result, what happens is these smart cities and communities deployments are uh, isolated, and they do not enjoy the economies of scale, which is a huge problem for industry. Because think about it, if you're a company, you cannot make a product for each city. You have to make a product and sell to thousands of cities. That's the way industries grows. And that's the problem that we are facing in all the place. So I want to go one by one in the global trends and implications. Uh, I want to set the tone for the discussion who is going to have uh, the panel we're going to have as excellent panel. Technology and companies and businesses in this side, so in the technology and business side, uh, I believe still the U United States, U.S. companies and U.S. technology leadership is still leading this trend. Okay? A lot of the things that are coming out of uh, the United States are being implemented all around the world. Cloud system, IoT, and AI, those are the examples. Uh, funding models, as I said, there are different funding models uh, based on region. In this way, uh, Asia seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, it's simply because they just pour the money into this thing, okay? And fast, efficient. In many cases, it's just that a very much a top, uh, because of top-down nature, uh, they are, in some cases, uh, they attract more businesses only because their businesses want fast return on their investment. Doesn't mean that U.S. is not following, but in U.S., funding models are much more relying on public-private partnerships. And we are expecting the private sector partners to invest onto this, which is creating, um, I will say, uh, speed bump in many cases. Now, best practices and standards. This is an interesting piece. As of today, what we are seeing, what I'm seeing, is that the United States is still leading in this standard world only because most of these uh, components and technologies that are used in smart city are still US-based. However, you have to remember that smart city is not just one component. It is not a metal box or metal uh, is a rubber band that you can create a standard around. At the end of the day, as time goes on, you're gonna see the standards are much more affected by the number of deployments. Pretty simple. Companies are going to follow wherever the business is, meaning that if you have more deployment with a certain standard or certain norms, companies are going to start manufacturing products based on it, and that becomes de facto standards. That's actually a very important thing to understand and point out, that to lead, for the U.S. to lead international standards, you have to have a base in the domestic market in smart city. You cannot just dictate, say, here is a standard and, and force companies to go and make products out of it. That's not going to work, okay? But as of today, fortunately, I think United States, and uh, in collaboration with Europe, we are still doing a lot of good job and uh, best practices and standards. Now, security and privacy issues. This is a thorny topic, as you can imagine. Uh, security and privacy is utmost concern. Uh, especially in Europe and the United States. Now, uh, from what I'm hearing, it is not as much of a concern in, in uh, certain countries uh, outside of uh, 
uh, the countries that I just mentioned. Um, sometimes this is a, uh, a roadblock. Sometimes this, is, this slows the development and deployment of these uh, systems. Um, sometimes the closed system that you don't have to worry about security and privacy is faster to source and deploy. But eventually, I think, the, this kind of closed system that do not pay as much attention to this security and privacy, we're going to have a limitation. Uh, they're going to be fast. But if you talk about expendability, if you talk about going for more privacy-aware solutions and, and more of a configurability, I believe uh, this is interesting and is going to be important to, to consider this uh, privacy and security issues from the beginning. Now, I'm sure this, the panel will discuss much, discuss much more about these issues, so I'm not going to uh, go on too much of it. Now, last but not the least is about national implications of smart infrastructure. I already mentioned that today I think the United States is in a good position to lead in the smart city world. It's not going to stay that way forever unless we have our own act together. All right? We need to have more deployments and more practices in the United States to keep leading uh, this, this portion of the uh, smart city area. Um, give an example, there are a lot of activities in ASEAN countries right now. Uh, for those who are not familiar with ASEAN, there are uh, the regions in South, South Asia, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, and Vietnam is those regions. They are investing a lot of money in smart city projects. Now, that's a battleground right now in many cases. United States government is trying to help, China is trying to help, and, and all the countries are trying to help. We'll see how it goes. But at the end of the day, the, the power of the setting standards and norms is going to come from experience and, and its own best practices. So uh, I'm going to end up uh, this, end this discussion uh, by saying that Smart city is like a building a Gothic cathedral, okay? You are not going to build it in two years. You may not build it in your lifetime. But the designers of the Gothic cathedral, they knew this is not going to be finished in their lifetime. But they still started with the faith that somebody after that person, in this case, uh, elected officials after you, uh, we're going to continue that to improve the quality of life of the city. That's how you have to go with a smart city, and that's how you win the game. Thank you very much, uh, and I hope I gave you some insights of a smart city, and I believe that there is this fascinating panel. We're going to continue this, this discussion. Thank you. Great, thank you, Dr. Rhee. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I'm John Hillman. I direct the Reconnecting Asia project here at CSIS. Um, and what I'd like to do, building on Dr. Rhee's remarks, is to say a bit about China's digital infrastructure activities uh, and the research that we're pursuing here into those activities. And let me start with a little historical context. Three decades ago, in a speech toward the end of the Cold War, President Reagan observed, and I quote, the biggest of big brothers is increasingly helpless against communications technology. And he was, of course, referring to the Soviet Union. The United States now finds itself in a very different competition. Today, the biggest of big brothers is the world's largest provider of communications technology 
including surveillance equipment. China is home to more than half of the world's surveillance cameras. Its government is pushing the boundaries of how these technologies are used, both quantitatively and qualitatively. It has the ambitious, and some experts would say uh, impossible goal, of achieving total surveillance coverage domestically and tying that coverage into a single centralized database. And we've seen that it's experimenting already with facial recognition for racial profiling. The expansion of China's police state has been a boon for its surveillance companies, but it has also come with a high human cost. And we've heard reports of over a million detained ethnic minorities. Uh, as, and as China's companies have grown, they're looking increasingly overseas for new opportunities. A study by Steve Feldstein at Carnegie um, looked at, identified a little over 70 countries using AI-enabled surveillance equipment. Uh, and it found that more than half of these, 57%, were using Chinese equipment. And China is spreading its standards not only through the sale of equipment uh, to other countries, but also at international bodies, like the UN's, uh, the UN's International Telecommunication Union, or the ITU, um, where Chinese representatives have made every submission for surveillance standards during the last three years, according to the Financial Times. Huawei, which markets a line of safe city surveillance products, is among the most active of China's companies globally. And so this is a bit of the research that we did last November, uh, just tracking some of Huawei's uh, safe city activities and the, and the places in which it signed um, agreements. And so we identified a little over 70 agreements for these safe city surveillance systems. Uh, and what's striking, if you look at this map, and there's a copy of this in the uh, brochure that you picked up on your way in, and you can also see it on our website. Um, what's striking about this um, is that most of these countries are partly free, they're middle income, and they're located in Asia and Africa. These are, in other words, the markets of the future. Now, all of these trends, I think, are a bit troubling. Um, and you, know, you might, I don't want to leave you with the impression that Chinese surveillance technology uh, is uh, racing ahead and um, this contest has already been lost. Um, because I think when you look closer, and we do need to look closer at individual cases uh, and look how the technology is used, and when you do that, uh, looking at individual projects and local impacts, the picture is more complicated. Huawei, for example, promises massive benefits to its, smart, to its safe city customers. This is an example from the Huawei website, uh, and it claims that one city witnessed major reductions in crime rate, uh, the case clearance rate shot up, response time improved, and I think most incredibly, citizen satisfaction rose to 98.3%. And of course, uh, you know, they didn't identify the name of the city, so it's impossible to, to go any further investigating this. Um, but we can look at other places where we know the equipment has been used. Um, and these, these are the promises that I think attract cities to buy equipment. Um, and I'm often struck by the fact that even given a lot of the anxiety around this technology, there's been, I think, a shortage of um, research looking at whether or not this is actually true, whether these benefits are actually being delivered. Uh, and so the reality, of, of course, is quite, more, is quite mixed. Um, in Islamabad, Pakistan, for example, Huawei built a $1 million or $100 million project in 2016. And this was marketed as a state-of-the-art surveillance project. 
including nearly 2,000 surveillance cameras and a command center that is resistant to attacks and explosions. Um, and you can imagine the political appeal of wanting to have this facility. Um, and you know, nothing says you're in control like having a command center. Um, but rather than decreasing, crime subsequently went up. Um, and according to reports, at one point, about half of the cameras were not working. And so obviously, crime statistics are complicated. There's a lot of factors at work here. Um, and so just as, we, just as we shouldn't claim in advertising that the introduction of something has dramatically uh, you know, increased citizen satisfaction, um, I, I think we, sh we could read some of this with um, a little more caution. There's a little more complexity there as well. Now, within China, um, the use of surveillance equipment is also encountering some challenges. Um, some Chinese government guidelines for, fa for facial recognition applications only require 70% accuracy. Uh, and that's a pretty low bar, which guarantees that false detections would be a major problem uh, and potentially increasing citizen resentment. In a recent survey, roughly 60% of Chinese citizens said they had experienced facial recognition technology not working. Uh, and an even higher number, nearly 80%, said that they were worried about data security. And so to be clear, these technical difficulties are not a reason to sit back and allow these trends to continue unchecked or unchallenged. Um, technology certainly will continue to improve. But I think it does mean there's an opportunity, uh, particularly in markets outside China, to provide better alternatives. And I think it means that we need to look closely at how these projects are actually unfolding on the ground. Um, and there's an urgency to the conversation that we're having today. And so with that, I'm pleased to continue that conversation and welcome our expert panel to the stage. Thank you.
and I had the opportunity to spend some time in China as well. And there I am. Uh, and then more recently, uh, I was asked by PwC to help um, stand up our smart cities business around the world. So I've been very much involved in both infrastructure, technology, and smart cities, and uh, delighted really to be here today with this great panel. So as I said, before I'm going to introduce you to these fabulous people, um, I do want to just add a few data points to um, what Dr. Ree and uh, John Hillman had said. Um, depending on your source of information, something between $200 billion and $2 trillion a year will be spent on smart city technologies and systems by 2030. So the smallest number is around 200 billion, and uh, there are numbers larger than 2 trillion. So just in 10 years' time, the market for smart cities technologies, systems, and infrastructure is expected to be very substantial. Also, depending on your source of information, there are currently between 27 and 600 smart cities around the world. So it go, goes back to what Dr. Reed was saying, you know, what is the definition of a smart city? And finally, with the advent of 5G and the fourth industrial revolution, the Internet of Things, the number of technologies supporting smart cities is expected to expand exponentially. So this is also a little bit of the backdrop to our panel today. So the questions for our panel under consideration is what is a smart city? Is there a uniform? technologies being used in urban environments. Two, what are the implications of smart cities or smart technologies? Improved quality of life or nefarious surveillance systems, privacy sacrifices, and data insecurity? And, how and then what are the implications of smart city technologies from China versus those from the West? Or are there any differences? And how does this play into the U.S.-China competition, cooperation, and supply chains? And with that introduction, now I know you're really interested in finding out about our panelists. Uh, I am really delighted to introduce them. There we go. Thank you very much. Uh, to my far right, Michael Sherwood is Director of Technology and Innovation at the City of Las Vegas and is leading Las Vegas' efforts to become a smart city, and if you are not familiar with what Las Vegas is doing, it is really groundbreaking. Michelle Holland, to my left, uh, is now with PricewaterhouseCoopers in Canada, handling smart cities, but served in the government of Toronto as the chief innovation officer, and also was the uh, key person on point at the government of Toronto in the negotiations with Sidewalk Labs and the establishment of that smart city development in Toronto. Appa Joshigani, to my immediate right, is a senior advisor at the World Bank and a dear friend um, with a long career on advising emerging economies on urban issues, urban development, transportation, and now smart cities. She is also the chair of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Urbanization. And finally, to my left, Dr. Sheena Gretens is assistant professor at the University of Missouri. She's also associated with the Center for East Asian Policy Studies at Brookings and the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard. And she's an expert on Chinese surveillance technologies and their applications in China and around the world. 
So you can see we've really assembled a terrific panel here today. And I want to jump right in with the first question. So that question is, what is a smart city? Is there a single model, multiple models, or just a label for a range of technologies? Sure, so Las Vegas um, has been undertaking this journey uh, for the last several um, years. Everything is different about what people consider a smart community. I don't associate with the term smart. I associate the term with connected. We're connecting the government to the people, people to government. We're providing better outcomes for the community, whether that's increased public safety, less congestion in traffic, um, better management of city resources and assets. That's really what our programs are about, is partnering with companies that can help us solve challenges. Some of the challenges we want to solve is not hiring more staffing, but using technology to further help um, our economy and to help our citizens. Uh, a lot of the efforts that we place around smart cities is under the guise of amenities. If we have great city amenities, people will move to our city. When people move to our city, what does that create for our city? That creates income for the city. So the more people we have that feel safe, that have the amenities, that get to work expeditiously, um, that go out and enjoy all the things Las Vegas has to offer, the more people that will come and gravitate to our community. And that's, that's at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. It's about creating new amenities, um, a safer community, and a community people want to be part of in order to help our community grow and prosper into the future. Thanks, Michael. Michelle, what would you add to that from Toronto? Your experience there. Great, thank you. Uh, let me see if this is Great. I don't have as a booming voice as the gentleman on the panel. So, uh, so Michelle Holland, and um, I was a former uh, city councillor with the city of Toronto, and uh, then I was the also on top of that for the last eight years, the uh, chief advocate for the innovation eco economy and the first innovation chief with uh, the city of Toronto. So also following what Michael said, I had the pleasure of working with many uh, cities abroad internationally, especially with our counterparts in the US. Uh, and I would say we're in the, what's what I'm calling the second generation of smart cities because it's it's been really, discussed thoroughly and I would say that people have not had a solid grasp of what it is and it's really been in its infancy. But as it's been maturing, I would definitely call it connected communities. Uh, even at the city of Toronto and many of uh, our, our international cities within, uh, with really in most of our democratic countries are re-terming it as connected cities or connected communities. So what it was or what it is is all of these disparate uh, technologies and sensors that are actually working together. Well, they should be working together. And from that, we can collect data. And from that data, if it's collected properly, and we can get into that more as we will on this panel about privacy issues around that, but essentially the collection of that data should produce evidence-based decision-making for our bureaucrats or civil servants within our levels of government safely. So we can collect that data in a trusted environment, communicate that to our citizens, and produce evidence-based decision-making that will, again, produce the issues that Michael was touching upon, such as better traffic flow, or better management of our services, 
or efficiency within our environment or our uh, within water, uh, within our lighting. Uh, so it'll produce uh, that as a result. So that's really what we're conveying to residents now. Myself now, I've joined, recently joined, as, uh, as Peter mentioned, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and I'm building out their cities practice and within that it's definitely a maturing environment with our smart city so i would say that uh it, it's it's all been positive for me um i know that there's been these issues around sidewalk labs which we can get into after there's concerns around privacy uh which we must address and through that build uh, a data governance plan or strategy and make sure that cities and really uh, provinces that our federal government or national government has that in, has that in place for the citizens. And then we can build our, our cities on top of that, our connected communities. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. I want to turn to APA and the emerging economies. Because when we think about smart cities, I think we often think Singapore or New York City. Um, but your work your profession has been in the emerging economies. So are we talking about the same thing in emerging economies as we're talking about in Las Vegas or Toronto? Thank you, Peter, that's an, that's an excellent question. And just in, I would just like to step back a little bit and say that why are we talking about smart cities today or connected communities, as my fellow pa panelists said? And basically because there are two defining phenomena of this century. One is urbanization and the other is digitization. So when we look at urbanization, you know, there are about 60 million people moving into cities every week. And most of this urbanization is taking place in developing countries and mostly in Africa and South Asia. And when we look at digitization, we know that we've moved from the world of computerization and so on into now the world of artificial intelligence, of the internet of things, of big data, data analytics, and so on. So how do these two defining phenomena today come together to, in fact, deliver better services to its citizens, to make connected communities, or to make cities more livable? And one thing that we need to know is that the reason that urbanization is taking place is because people have come to realize that there is very little future in rural poverty that if you have aspirations, if you're looking for economic opportunities, if you're looking for creating ladders of wealth, you have to move into economies which are agglomeration economies like the cities and density. So when we bring digitization and urbanization together and we talk about smart cities or connected communities, there are many, many, many uh, definitions. It's, it's a very uh, debated topic and yet there is a lot of convergence. But what most definitions come together about is that smart cities include digitization and they include big data or data analytics to deliver services to its citizens and to take care of its um, stakeholders, which include citizens, private sector, businesses, um, public sector, every, everybody. At the World Bank, we came to a, a sort of a core definition, which basically says that a smart city is a city which manages its core functions like city planning, urban management, service delivery like waste pickup and so on with the help of digital technology and big data where possible. But it does it in a way which is efficient, which is inclusive, which is innovative. And because climate change is such a big looming danger for us, 
which is resilient. And we know that some 300 million people today live in cities which are coastal cities, and they are open to climate change in terms of uh, you know, high, high wave rises, in terms of heat islands, and in terms of just destruction through hurricanes and so on. So smart cities are basically cities which are delivering their core functions with the help of digital technology and big data, but in a way to make connected communities livable cities and to deliver efficiently and economically. Thank you, Abba. And I want to turn, lastly, to Sheena to give us a view on China. We heard a bit from John, and, and we saw a map with a hole in it um, from Dr. Rhee with respect to uh, Chinese cities' participation in the U.S. government NIST effort. Can you talk to us a little bit about this concept of uh, Chinese safe cities, um, and how does that relate to the smart city concept? I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give this microphone a, a try one more time. Um, so I think the idea of a smart city as a city that is doing its work through digital technology is a good one. Um, as we think about it in the Chinese context, it typically involves a platform for urban governance that collects and integrates data from a wide variety of inputs um, and usually has some analytic capability, whether that's the capacity to do big data analysis or using machine learning or AI. Um, so there's a range of inputs that can be involved. The projects are often multi-layered, um, and the analytical capabilities that are involved can vary somewhat, even within the, the Chinese context. Um, the smart or safe city projects within China are sort of the, the latest version of a long-standing conversation in China about the importance of informatization and digitalization in cities that sort of predates the smart city discussion. Um, and so these platforms and their adoption really took off in China over the course of the 2007 to 2017 um, decade. Um, I have a project now that is tracking the diffusion of these platforms across China's 334 prefectural level units. Um, and they spread largely from experimental places on the east, eastern seaboard, um, inland and to more rural and um, less developed um, areas of China. Um, I think the, the point to make about their use in the Chinese context is somewhat different than the perspective that we've heard so far, um, which is that in China, the usage of these platforms is multifaceted. And what that means is that they are used to improve governance and responsiveness to the citizenry and the residents of a city. Um, but they are also very clearly used to demobilize potential contention and solidify party control. Um, and the safe city variant of a smart city is a safe cities are a public safety specific platform. Um, and so safe city is the term used by Huawei and it's, it's marketing of its particular platforms and products. Um, but there are a range of companies that do safe city style platforms um, and sell them in China and abroad. Um, and they're aimed at facilitating what China refers to as public security. But it's very important to know that in China, public security refers not only to ordinary criminal policing, um, but also to political control. 
and under Xi Jinping in particular, this phrase prevention and control that has become the hallmark of the approach to thinking about how to manage Chinese society. So um, I think it's, it's just important to note um, that, that there are some pretty significant differences in usage or citizen experience um, between the democratic context that we mostly focused on um, in the first few minutes of the panel and some of the non-democratic contexts um, that I focus on, whether that's in China or overseas. Um, and I think we're going to come to this, but um, there are about 80, between 80 and 100 countries where these sort of safe city platforms have been exported from China to, to over, well over 80 countries, if not closer to 100. Um, and so I think it's just very important as we think about the global smart or safe city phenomenon to keep in mind this distinction between um, the political environment and the technology itself. Thanks. So what I'm hearing are some common themes around the definition of a smart city. And, and one of those themes is citizen services and some way in which you can improve the provision of services to citizens. And the other aspect of that is through digitization, some element of technology being deployed. But as we heard in the opening comments, and as Sheena has just pointed out, there's another side to these technologies and another side to the citizen services. And these are issues of control, surveillance, privacy, data security. So I want to dig into that, and I'm going to start again with, with Michael and say, uh, Michael, we, we, we've heard a lot about what's going on, uh, I think particularly in China, but with issues around um, facial recognition software, artificial intelligence, and other kinds of technologies that can be deployed here in the United States. Are you deploying any of these technologies? And if so, or even if not, how do you balance privacy concerns with technology advancements? Sure. So in Las Vegas, um, you know, we have a, it's just a different mindset. I think one of the things I didn't make clear in my opening remarks is that we're, smart city technology provides transparency to the population. So all the data we collect, it's not based on an individual. It's based on a collection of information. But we publish that data through an open data portal called opendata.lasvegasnevada.gov. You can go there and you can assess the data that we collect and use that data to come up with your own conclusions or what we hope is to build an economy around data, is to have the citizenry use that data and create their own applications, whether it be they create the next Uber or Lyft type business or they create some other business that helps further the city, extremely important. But anything we do is generally based in transparency. Um, smart city technology allows um, the city to be held accountable for issues that we need to correct. Let's just take a modern day example. How would you like your streets to be serviced and maintenanced? Currently in almost every American city, you'll see an individual in a lawn chair at an intersection with a hat, with a clipboard counting number of cars that drive by, and that's how cities manage the traffic count. So that tells the city at one time every three to five years how often that road is used and what its maintenance life should be. What we're doing is using an optical sensor to manage the roadway to actually detect potholes before they form. It's very inexpensive for a city to slurry coat or patch a pothole before it becomes a big gaping hole that not only causes damage to vehicles, but also causes congestion and slows down traffic. So again, in the areas of, of surveillance and, and so forth, you know, we basically are using different types of technology. We don't consider it surveillance. Um, we use thermal, infrared, um, different types of technology. All we're looking for is to capture a vehicle that's driving by. We're not 
concerned about the license plate even. We're looking for traffic flow in that example. Um, in our parks and some of our other public spaces, we're more worried about, one, if it's after hours and a facility is closed, we can get a heat image and know that someone's in the facility that's not supposed to be when it's closed. We're not doing anything with any facial or what we consider in the industry PII, or personally identifiable information. That's not what we're concerned about. And we don't, none of our systems are built around collecting personal identifying information. What we do really is look at the aggregate. What we're looking for is the number of vehicles on a roadway. Um, more efficient um, use of technology than hiring an individual to go out there and do this road count every three to five years. Much cheaper to use technology and then eventually start using that technology to automate things within the city um, to improve traffic flow, to um, uh, reduce and change outcomes. What we do is use the data to change outcomes or provide data to the citizenry. It's no different, I think, in every community. All of you live somewhere where there's great amenities and you want your government to be efficient. Um, it's no different than with what we're doing in Las Vegas. We're just using technology to help us. And I, I look at it in closing. I'm not a big Star Wars fan, but it's the best kind of relationship I can give as far as an analogy. You can use the force or technology for good, or you can use it for evil. In Las Vegas, we use it for good um, to improve the outcomes for the community. And that's what it's about. It's not about the individual, it's about the collective community. But transparency is a big part of that story. Uh, Michael, I think you made a very important point, and that's about personally identifiable information. And so the city of Las Vegas is not collecting any personally identifiable information, but using aggregated information from vehicle passages or, or pedestrian patterns, et cetera, to try to improve city services. Sheena, how does that contrast with what's happening in China? Uh, it's a fairly significant contrast um, in that uh, a lot of the news coverage recently of China has focused on the development of facial recognition technology, um, but that also uh, the issue is that that data is then matched with um, government databases. So for example, someone's history of accessing social welfare, past history of being involved with public security or the police. Um, possibly their household registration, so who they live with, where they went to school, educational records, um, ID registers, car license history, um, license plate recognition. So, um, and, and the, that it, most of that data is personally identifiable information. So I do think that's a, a very significant difference um, that provides the government with more capability um, to do specific things that involve identifying citizens and individual citizen behavior um, versus just sort of counting traffic flows and things like that. So I think the, the tasks are somewhat different um, and the, the amount of data and the way that it's, it's collected, identified, and managed are, are quite different. Um, so I think there are significant privacy concerns where the data is identified. And so, for example, um, the idea of an open record or an open government portal um, probably sounds more appealing to us if it doesn't have pictures of somebody in their pajamas running into the grocery store because they forgot milk or something. Um, I think you might have a lot of people worried that what happens in Vegas won't stay in Vegas if this data becomes identified. <laughs> um, I don't know, not, um, 
leave that up to the audience. Um, so I think this matters, again, because you're, you're not talking about a small fraction of the, the world where um, personally identifiable information is on the table. Um, and so there's a hole in the map when it comes to Latin America. Um, but in the data that I've collected, which looks at the export of Chinese surveillance and policing platforms, Latin America, almost every country in Latin America has adopted this technology, at least in some city or province. Um, so my map is almost entirely red on the, the, the southern South America, um, the continent of South America. Um, and the interesting thing is that includes both democracies and autocracies. So the chart that John put up where he showed by freedom level, if you look at the level of democracy, um, like a polity score or something, um, it's, it's very, very similar. Um, these systems are being used in democracies and they're being used in, in non-democracies as well. And the difference is, is not so much in the use of the technology. Um, as, as we heard just a moment ago, um, but who controls it? So in the United States, many more surveillance cameras are controlled by other corporations or people have them like on their front porch, right? Um, uh, versus local governments or national governments. And the other critical difference is the rules about who can do what with the data that's collected and whether or not it's identifiable to specific individuals. Um, that really is more what separates democracy from um, from the use of this technology in non-democratic context, whether that's in China or in the 80 to 100 other countries that, that we might be talking about. Um, and what that suggests to me is that there really is a need for a global conversation, um, especially among democratic governments, about you know, what we want the best practices for safe cities, what we want a data governance strategy to look like, what is the menu of options that are compatible with democratic governance. Um, with a democratic political system? What firewalls or limitations do we want to say, okay, no personally identifiable information? Um, and really, you know, what forum should that, that be set in? So John mentioned a moment ago that, that the UN's ITU um, has been accepting submissions for standards on the use of facial recognition technology, and the only submissions they've received are from Chinese tech companies. Um, the question, so that raises two questions. Is the ITU the right forum to be setting those standards in? Um, I don't know. I think that's an open policy question for us to talk about. Um, and I'd be interested, particularly in, in um, the, the practitioners and the folks who've been involved in this, what is the right forum to have this conversation? Um, or are we going to continue with a sort of decentralized way of, of, of doing this? Um, and then second, what should the content look like? Whether it's personally identifiable information or um, other questions about how the data is collected and, and stored. Um, but I, I do think it's time, we're overdue to have a, a conversation that talks about what we want this to look like in democratic societies that, that have a strong interest in protecting privacy and civil liberties. It's also important just to note quickly that we're mainly focused on video analytics and technologies around that. There's more to smart cities and safe city programs than optical and camera-based systems. We use LIDAR, which is a radar-based system. We use sensors that detect trash in a can if it's full or not. So, you know, the analogy of everything is identifiable in this big brother society, that that's not necessarily, at least from a Las Vegas perspective, a smart city is more than just optical systems. It's efficiency in creating amenities, um, making sure trash cans are empty, not overflowing, which creates health problems. So there's a lot more than just to the, the actual part. And, and what does stay, what happens in Vegas does stay there. But that slogan is changing very soon. So we're having a new slogan coming out. I don't know what it is.
<laughs> Sheena, if I could continue just a little bit, um, building on some of your, your points there. So you mentioned that there are some 80 to 100 um, countries, or cities anyway, who have, um, have uh, purchased these surveillance type systems from China. Are you also saying then that the capacities to do what China is able to do in terms of surveillance and control um, is being exported as well? And it, not just the technology capabilities, but kind of the, the human uh, monitoring capacity and these sorts of things? Or is this really a technology purchase um, around improving safety in cities? So that's a great question, um, and it varies by country, by adopting country. In some cases, um, countries ask for or receive some kind of technical training or tech support when they purchase a specific platform or hardware associated with the platform. Um, I think there are two sort of important caveats for thinking about this technology, and they apply both within China and as you think about the global adoption of these technologies. Um, one is that the way that this um, this policy or this initiative was rolled out in China um, was that there was a national policy priority, but then different localities were allowed to experiment with different approaches. Um, and so what that meant is that each locality figured out how to integrate data in a different way, which then mean, means that integrating at the level above that can be quite challenging at the provincial or the national level. Um, so first of all, I think there are um, you know, the, the sort of process of trying to put all this data together to, to use it in governance is, um, is a work in progress in China, and that the human capital element of this, um, particularly in public safety, where you have policemen and police leadership who came of age in the sort of strike hard model of policing, um, it often um, you know, switching to the tech-based or the safe city approach and those tools is um, is just a very different way of conducting what you think your job is as a public safety or police officer. Um, and so what that means is I think you're going to see that same issue around the world. Um, I don't think you can assume that because the technology is provided to a different political environment or a differently structured police force, interior ministry, um, that you're always going to have, I think you're going to run into the same challenges of how do you integrate information if it's held bureaucratically in different places, what kind of human capital is required. Yes, China's providing um, some or these companies are often providing some kind of technical support, but that that's not a complete solution to the problem. Um, and so I think we um, we don't uh, we don't entirely know because so many of these adoptions um, are new. They occurred in 2017, 2018. So the contracts are still being implemented. We actually don't know a lot about what the effects have been. Um, we just haven't had time to see what how adoption plays out in these different national and political contexts. Just to clarify the um, the figure that I quoted, there are cities in um, in at least 80 countries. Hmm. Um, so that's not a number of cities. It's cities in at least 80 countries, but the number of cities is higher. Um, so there's several, for example, in Germany, um, and there are a lot in China. Um, I think Huawei's latest public figures said something like 700 cities in over 100 countries. Um, that was in their latest annual report. Um, and so um, a good number of those cities are in China. That 700 cities figure includes cities in China. Mm. Um, but they did say over 100 countries. 
Um, our data project, which tries to independently confirm where these platforms are going, has found between 80 and 85 of those. Hmm. Well, thank you, Sheena. And, and I think Michael raised a very good point, that the technologies in smart cities are not just facial recognition or artificial intelligence, although artificial intelligence can sit behind sensor data and other things. There are a whole range of technologies that enable better trash collection or smarter mobility, um, greater citizen convenience, et cetera. So I want to take this question now to the emerging markets, to, to, to Appa, and ask her, uh, so from the World Bank's perspective, Obviously, you're aware of some of the issues and challenges around privacy, around surveillance, but also the power of these technologies to achieve some of those objectives that you set out at the World Bank for smart cities. So how do you advise governments, uh, particularly at the sub-national level, if you think about mayors of cities uh, around the emerging economies, what kind of advice is the World Bank, or are you able to give them in you know, how to acquire technology, how to manage that technology, how to develop a smart city and, and retain uh, basic human rights and privacies. Thank you, Peter. That's, a, that's an excellent question. Because um, the bank helps both in terms of um, projects and policy advice. But I think one thing that we are very clear about is that you cannot take fancy digital systems and put them on a badly functioning urban planning and management system and expect that things would suddenly improve. So a lot of our policy advice is really long-term policy advice, advising governments what to do with their urban planning, what to do with their management, how to do infrastructure and how to do it more efficiently. And our main idea is really to see, can we help these cities leapfrog? into more developed approaches because that's what digitization today and the whole digital ecosystem has allowed us to do. It has allowed us to leapfrog development and actually get into phase three and four and skip phase one and two. Now, in terms of the policy advice itself, I think it's important to know what are the key gaps that smart cities or developing country cities need to overcome in order to be smart. And one of the key gaps is um, city leadership and governance. And I still recall that about five, um, maybe actually it's almost nine years ago, when Barcelona held its first Smart City Expo. The deputy mayor of Barcelona stood up in his, uh, uh, in his keynote and said, you cannot have a smart city with a stupid mayor. <laughs> and that, is absolutely true. So what we need is really smart leadership for mayors to think in advance of where do they want to lead their cities, how can they do better and more economical, provide better and more economical infrastructure, and, and how to really do more uh, with less. So I think city leadership is important. Secondly, you know, um, collaboration amongst different levels of governments. We find that, you know, and this was mentioned earlier, that national and um, um, so basically starting at federal, state level, and local levels, there is very little integration. There's very little thinking or coordination in terms of uh, or collaboration uh, amongst these levels. Thirdly, administrative silos. These are, you know, the transport department not talking to the energy department. You're digging up the road. You could, you could bloody well have put optical fibers and other things, but no, the road is closed, and now we're going to dig it up again. So administrative, um, uh, basically, um, um, silos need to be 
um, taken care of, and then assess and adapt technologies. So just because a technology works in a certain city doesn't mean that it'll work in yours. So can you do some grassroots innovation? Can you have people think of apps and other implications? And you know, I, as we were discussing earlier in the green room, that you know, uh, US is amazing at deep research and initial research, but a lot of innovation and apps are coming out of you know basically needs in developing countries. A lot of apps are coming out of China. Shenzhen today is the innovation capital of the world, apparently. So, and then, you know, how do cities plan and implement and manage change? But one important thing that I do want to put out here since we're talking about emerging and developed country cities is how do they finance technology? And I think a lot of it has been raised in terms of how cities face some kind of a capture from a certain company or a certain technology so that you don't have interoperable um, systems and you are tied to one technology. And, you know, we have examples of Chinese and East Asian companies as well as Western companies um, selling operating systems to cities which are one-off and cost them millions of dollars and then they realize that they are now bind, bind they're kind of bound to move on to, into that level of technology and they can't do anything else. So one of our advice is really policy long-term, what technologies to advise, what to do with the, with the underlying systems uh, themselves. Um, I don't know if there was a second part to your question. Mm. Well, I, I have actually several follow-up questions, but let me, <laughs> let, let me um, ask this, and, and you, you raise a really interesting point, and that is that some very interesting innovations are coming out of emerging markets. And um, uh, Dr. Ree spoke earlier about standard setting. And we have, um, obviously, standards that are being set in China and standards that are being set in the Western world, et cetera. Can you tell us a little bit about how those digital innovations actually can move from emerging economies into the smart city marketplaces around the world. Are you doing any work in that area? So I think one thing that the World Bank does a lot is peer-to-peer -peer learning. So we would take one city to another city or gather a group of cities who are in, interested in, let's say, for example, what Barcelona has done or what Amsterdam has done or what Las Vegas has done and bring them along because we do feel that cities learn best from each other, there's a cloud of trust um, there. So that, that's, you know, that's allowing cities to understand in terms of their local context and their own development as to what technologies they can adopt. And, and that's, in a way, a way of standard setting. What we hear from a lot of cities is that you know, providers of technology come with their own playbook that they don't really want to know or are interested in what are your difficulties, what are your solutions that you're looking for, but this is something that I have to sell. And a lot of cities have very clearly said, we don't want your playbook, we're looking for um, solutions. So in terms of standard setting, Peter, I would say that we are nowhere where Nest is with Dr. Ree, and uh, we are really looking at what is something which is not exclusive to a certain company or is um, what is there which is um, seamless. Mm. So now, you know, this whole talk about 5G, whether we're going to reject China, whether we're going to go with Western technologies only, I think one big disruption will be the seamlessness of 5G if these two systems don't talk to each other. And, and you know, 5G has amazing potential for digitization and for basically smart cities and better service delivery. 
Thank you. Well, much more to come on that topic. I have about six other follow-up questions, but um, uh, let me turn to Michelle, and I want to bring this back to North America from the perspective of uh, privacy challenges, data security, and the deployment of technology, because Toronto really is a, um, is a case in point with, uh, if you've had a chance to take a look at the proposal, it's in the public domain that Sidewalk Labs submitted to the City of Toronto. It's a phenomenal, very compelling, very exciting proposal about really the integration of uh, technology with infrastructure and citizen services. And I think there was a lot of uh, appropriate excitement about the potential for us to develop a, a smart city at that level of sophistication. But almost immediately, there were challenges that came up in Toronto. And um, as far as I know, and Michelle, you're much closer to this, and we're getting to that question to you. But as far as I know, that project has been delayed due to citizens' concerns about data privacy, um, data security, um, and data governance overall. So can you share with us where, what the state of play is, what the, the issues were? Has it been resolved? And if it has been resolved, is there something that everybody can learn from the experience in Toronto? Sure, and uh, you and I have had discussions on this, so you will know my answer, but uh, we, um, so a number of years ago, we were obviously uh, working with an agency in the city of Toronto, which is called Waterfront Toronto. It's an actual tripartite agency. So it's federal, provincial, and city, which is a bit unusual and a bit difficult. Um, and I actually was chair of appointments, so I would appoint uh, the members and directors to their board and making sure that it had uh, technology experts on it so that they would understand what was coming down the line. Uh, so they have an area, we have an area of in Toronto, uh, which is on our waterfront. Uh, and we would always compare ourselves to Chicago. That's our big, our big comparator uh, with, with Toronto. So if you've been to Toronto, we're very similar to Chicago. Uh, but we have a waterfront as well. And it's a bit of a, I would say, a brownfield. Uh, it needs to be redeveloped. And so the proposal was to build uh, an innovation zone uh, from what we would say is called the Internet Up. So it was just uh, a phenomenal opportunity to create uh, a part of our city or a district, an innovation zone or an innovation district that uh, would really be the first of its kind in the world. Um, maybe outside of China, I'm sure China has, to, has done it, uh, but in, in our democratic society, in one of our democratic countries. So um, it was really exciting and then, uh, and wait, and. Uh, uh, I would so so Alphabet is the parent company, and that uh, and the sister company is Google. So you can put that in perspective because sometimes people say it's it's Google, but it's not. It's the sister company of Google, uh, and um, we have great relations with with Google as well. But Alphabet came in; they won the award. It was contracted uh, to Alphabet, and we created Keyside, and um, and we were set to go. And then what happened, as you would recall, is Cambridge Analytics uh, had a scandal, and so did Google and Facebook, and there was cyber attacks and a number of attacks, and this set the stage uh, for a lot of concerns. So I'd like to say it's a bit of a red herring, but at the same time, I would flip it and say it was actually a positive outcome in the sense that it really brought out the concern, which, which was rightly so, um, but also it gave policymakers a chance to respond to that concern about data privacy. Uh, it's, really about, it's really a privacy issue. 
But in terms of the privacy issue, what we can do and what we've learned from it is that every, every level of government needs to create a data governance strategy. Uh, so I would say, and Abba, this was a great when you mentioned that comment um, about what is smart cities, but I would say that you really can't call yourself a smart city unless you have a data governance strategy. Um, because it really compelled and moved policymakers. And remember, everybody's sometimes afraid, policymakers are always afraid uh, to deal with these things, uh, anything that's a little bit um, hairy. Uh, politicians love to bury their heads in the sand. Um, so as a former politician, I can say that. And I always love to challenge and make sure that you do things that are difficult uh, because it's for, the, it's for the best interest of the citizens. Uh, and so out of that, um, and then Peter and I and, and our group within PwC created a data governance um, thought leadership piece around that because as I was in this new role, I was getting calls globally from around the world. Everybody's watching Sidewalk Labs and saying, oh, Michelle, you worked on Sidewalk Lab. What's happening? Um, because it's been such a contentious issue. So the current stage, again, it's not really that it's new because we were doing these things in Toronto. We were doing these innovation hubs and they're not new. I've been, I've been to uh, the Valley, I've been to, to Vegas, I've been globally. We, as, as policymakers and at the city level, we do travel. We do travel and we learn from each other because it's, it is that, I guess, trusted, trusted environment when you're peer to peer. Um, and you can really learn from each other. And in that, what it was, uh, was that it wasn't new, but it's just that the issue of data governance and privacy was, I would say, brought to the forefront. So again, you know, residents can go online, you can order everything that you want now, very convenient. I did it all on Black Friday. It's, and I know they're collecting all my data. But at the same time, residents do not feel that trust that level of trust with their government. Uh, so it's up to, governance to governments to convey that and make sure that you create this environment of trust, that residents know what they're opting into, understand that it is open, uh, that it is open data, that it's anonymized, that it's protected. Where is it stored? One of the questions that we had, I'll say, this is a really interesting point, is that federally Canada didn't understand didn't have laws, it's so, it's so new technology that you could actually store our data in the US because it's the Google was the, or sorry, Sidewalks, the, uh, the parent company. So I think that made Canadians nervous, not that we, you know, we love Americans, but it would probably be an issue, you know, where are you gonna store that, that data? So it, all of these issues are, be, are brought up, but at the same time, I, I can say, and I think it's a positive part, is that at the federal, provincial and city level, we're creating that new framework. And we're doing it with our counterparts in the US, globally with democratic uh, countries, PEPIDA, you have GDPR. And so I actually enjoy it uh, as a former policymaker. I, I think it's important. And it's, it's the best part of creating that framework so that as we're building our smart cities and for the next 100 years, we have that foundation laid. So Michelle. Is it the case that that data governance framework is now in place in Toronto and is, uh, is viewable by the public and, and uh, could it serve as a model for other cities? Yep, so it's currently at all, even actually all three levels are going through community consultation. Uh, so it's 
extreme community consultation. We do overboard in, in Canada, which is a good thing. Um, so it's currently underway. And in that regard, it is a uh, sidewalk, sidewalk or the key side is on hold. They're a bit hogtied, hog I'll say. And the unfortunate part, I'll say, is because of the red herring aspect of it, um, it's, not, it's not moved forward, which is an unfortunate part because we need to progress the cities. Uh, it's become political fodder for the media, as you can imagine. As soon as, as soon as Sidewalk does one little move, it's a big scare and, and really not rightly so in the media. So I, I think it's unfortunate uh, because we're, we're nervous mm. that they're going to move to, we've heard, Detroit and other amazing cities, and we don't want it to leave Toronto. Uh, so that's the, the other side of it, is that it's a bit of fear-mongering and... Um, we're not, uh, as to Michael's point, we're not out. We're not here to do bad. I don't think any cities out there. To, I don't think so. You know, I, but uh, getting these safeguards in place, you can convey that trust to citizens so that uh, you know, not every you're never going to get 100 percent, but most people will understand that their that their data is is privately secured. Well, that is a great introduction to the last question I have for the panel, and then we'll go into some Q&A. But I, I think we've heard a lot about, you know, the potential of these technologies and also some of the concerns around these technologies. So I think it, it raises in me a fundamental question of, you know, wh where is this headed? Is this, it, it, are we going to emerge in an, an environment where these challenges around privacy and data security actually restrain the growth of the uh, technologies and development of smart cities in the West, um, and then standards are being set potentially by others in the marketplace whose values may be somewhat different around privacy and security, or are we going to be able to work through these issues in a timely fashion because there is a bit of a race going on here. And so I, I want to go to Michael again, um, put you on the spotlight, Michael, with respect to, to Las Vegas. How do you see this issue working out? It doesn't sound like you have many citizen concerns presently based on the way in which you're, you're introducing smart technologies. At the same time, there's a development just outside of Las Vegas, I think it's called Blue Tech, that was announced recently, which is going to be a sidewalk labs type development just outside of Las Vegas. And, and so they may uh, encounter these concerns as well. Where do you see this going and how will Las Vegas try to navigate going forward? Well, I think all cities are going are to navigate and move forward. Um, I, I think for Las Vegas specifically, we're a city that is kind of uh, different than most cities. We're very innovative. Um, we're a leader in entertainment and leader in um, other types of um, arts and entertainment districts. We're used to taking brand new buildings and imploding them and building new, new larger structures or structures that are built nowhere else in the world. I think like any modern city, um, Las Vegas, as it transitioned from dirt roads to asphalt, I mean, we, you know, we don't have, um, well, maybe there's some, I haven't seen any recently, but we don't have places to hitch your horses anymore. There's an evolution in a city that it grows. Will there be challenges? I'm sure just as there were when they got rid of the last hitching post, there were complaints in the city from where were they going to hitch horses? We, be, we will move beyond that. And Las Vegas as a culture is a dynamic community um, full of, of very intelligent and bright individuals that want a better future. And so while there will be discussion, there will be debate, there's no doubt in my mind that through that process, that democracy process, that Las Vegas will continue to move forward and prosper 
going forward. So I'm concluding Michael's an optimist. That's right. What are the odds? Uh, that'll cost you. <laughs> Uh, but I, I do want to go to, back to Michelle, um, and, then, and then we'll go to, you know, outside of North America. So, Michelle, how do you see this unfolding? You, you seem to be optimistic as well just a moment ago. Yeah, uh, same. I mean, we, again, we have, even prior to this, had the innovation areas, and they're continuing. Uh, I'm hoping that council will overcome this hurdle. Uh, we'll go to council with their new report, um, but I'm hearing good things. And um, I'm hearing that it's becoming more positive, that they're understanding it more. And as it becomes more, uh, I'd say, more trust in the public domain, then of course the politicians are more comfortable uh, to move forward on that. So uh, positive again, I think that we can only move forward. I mean, Toronto is just you know, phenomenal city, punching above its weight. It's, uh, we always work with our counterparts to progress and be a leader in technology. So I expect the same. Don't you love the enthusiasm and optimism of our city officials? <laughs> uh, Appa, going to the emerging economies then, uh, you talked about the guidance that the World Bank, Bank provides. How do you see this sorting out? I mean, it really is a technology race in some respects. How, how do you see this sorting out for the emerging economies? What's going to be a deciding factor in terms of you know, what technologies they ultimately choose and how far they go down the, the road to protection of privacies, privacy. Thank you, Peter. I think, you know, there is definitely going to be a convergence in certain areas that cities will come together. We heard both from Michael and from Michelle that cities talk to each other. There's always peer-to-peer -peer learning and we definitely see that things which have been successful in one city have moved on to another city irrespective of where they are. So for example, you know, Las Vegas has this, um, your solid waste um, trash bins. You have little sensors which tell you they are filled or you, know, you optimize the route for your trucks. Baltimore does the same. And then the city of Amman adopted that two years ago because they were burgeoning with refugees from Syria and they knew what was happening in Lebanon with the whole waste situation, could not take any risk, and they started using similar sensors and optimizing the routes. So we know that technology travels when it works and that it will converge. I think there'll also be a lot of competition happening at the same time because there is a race to the top, and I think especially that race to the top is in business which companies get this huge trillion dollar market which is going to be there in the next 20, 30, 40 years. You know, um, so, so that's definitely very big. I think the biggest question for us is data privacy. And that's come up in the panel as well. And why is data privacy such a big question for emerging countries? It's because there's a lack of capacity. There's a lack of capacity technologically and there's a lack of capacity in terms of human capital. So when India announces its 100 smart city program and puts in subsidies for cities, each city is trying to create its own local data center. And who is going to make sure that citizens have their privacy actually guarded in those data centers? Because Indians are also great at hacking. This is an unofficial comment. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, I mean, we are exposed to all kinds of dangers. So I would definitely say that we are amazingly optimistic about where digital technology, the internet of things, the sensors talking to each other, when it's adopted, it is applied on systems which are working and good and functioning and are robust with good leadership, with good governance. And I think that's, that's, where, that's what our future worldview is, and we hope that it'll come to fruition. Great optimism here as well from Abba. And so I'm gonna to turn to Sheena for the last word on this topic. What are you looking at as you look at the potential expansion of uh, Chinese systems around the world and how do you think it may affect these dynamics? Sure. Um, I mean, I think it's important to situate this in the context of the discussion about tech in the US-China competition um, because I, th I think it's very difficult to feel like we're having a complete conversation unless that piece of it's on the table. Um, and. I think it's important to acknowledge the national security dimension of that issue. Um, the use of AI in military competition, the potential for civil military fusion is the translation of the Chinese term. So the spillover between civilian and military applications of AI research and, and development, um, the effect that these technologies can have on overall economic competitiveness, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, China's not also the only provider of this technology. so. Um, there is an element of corporate and market competition, um, which we talked a bit about earlier, not just with the US, but with companies that operate out of Israel, Japan, South Korea, Samsung is, is heavily involved in some smart city stuff. Um, and so um, one of the things that, um, that my research has found is that adoption of Chinese platforms, particularly the safe city platforms in this case, is correlated with the level of strategic partnership that a country has with the PRC. So the foreign ministry has a ranked list of strategic partnerships, and that's a pretty good predictor of who's going to adopt this kind of platform. Um, in part because in some cases there's preferential financing options made available um, by like the Export-Import Bank or something. Um, and so that, those concerns I think are real. Um, and so are the data ownership concerns. Um, China has passed, as of 2017, very um, sort of stringent or strong national intelligence laws that, um, that allow the party and the government to go to a company and ask for data to be turned over. The major question is not sort of would it be turned over, it is the is it being turned over on an automated basis or only upon request. Um, and there is a significant difference in, in those two, but, um, but the law is fairly clear about the responsibility of both individuals and corporations to provide that data when, when the state requires it. Um, and I think that that, that we need to be very realistic about about that, given the the spread of the the model, um, because it will have consequences, particularly as it interacts with different types of political environments, um, mixed democracies, strong democracies, um, strong authoritarian environments will all have different different effects. Um, Here's where I think it's a little bit of a mistake, though, to just uh, interpret all the safe city stuff and the export of this technology through the, that lens of US-China competition. So having said, we need to put that on the table, now I'm going to try to back up a little bit and say, here's what else there is to the story. Um, so the same research that finds that uh, strategic importance to China is a good predictor of what will adopt the, um, what places will adopt this technology, 
also suggest that adoption is strongly correlated with crime rates. Um, and adopters, as we talked about a moment ago, are often subnational political jurisdictions, meaning that the decision makers are mayors, their city councils, um, they may be provincial or state governors. Um, and if you think about the incentives and this, this sort of set of expertise that those officials bring to the table, they are primarily focused on public safety, reducing crime, job growth, attracting investment, maybe boosting tourism. And um, some of them have less familiarity with the national security concerns of the type that have been um, elevated in, in DC lately when we talk about Huawei or other Chinese companies. Um, and they often operate on shorter time horizons. So um, the time horizons are often determined by electoral cycles rather than sort of building a long-term, sustainable, open uh, system that can be modified and built on. Um, and so I think there's, there's a sort of dual responsibility here. Um, first, it is important, I think, that we figure out, and I'd be, I have follow-up questions about how the World Bank handles this issue, right? How do we, how do subnational officials become educated about the real issues around security, democracy, data protection, and privacy? Um, whether it's protection from hacking and sort of cybersecurity protections for data or otherwise. Um, you know, I, what is the mechanism by which an official who doesn't have a background in those issues can get the knowledge they need to account for those factors? But I think it's also important as the U.S. tracks and thinks about these issues um, and thinks about how to craft its policies and its international messages, whether to individual countries or globally, um, that we really understand and account for the incentives and the needs, as Abba mentioned, on a very on a very sort of customized basis of the people who are adopting these technologies. They're being adopted to serve a need, and we need to understand what that is to have productive conversations. Um, and I see room for improvement and understanding on both sides of that conversation right now. So that's one thing that I'll look for to see how that's developing in the coming years. Great. Well, I will let the audience decide whether that was an optimistic or pessimistic uh, <laughs> point of view about the future, but I do think it's time to get some audience engagement. And so we've got a few minutes for Q&A. Um, we have people around the room with microphones, and we have a lot of hands raised. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to start picking on, on uh, people. If you, when you stand up, if you could just tell us your name and affiliation if you have one, and uh, we'll go right into the Q&A. So this woman right up here in the front. Thank you, uh, Sandra Bear with Personal Cities. Uh, thank you, it's a great panel. Uh, I'm so curious about sort of a faster transformation of cities, and I'm focused on the smarter side, including, of course, the safety and surveillance and security issues, but uh, we've just written a paper on global urbanization, and the trend we saw overriding almost everything that's been said today is about uh, a sense of belonging, more than inclusion, it's about you know, this social, economic, educational exclusion that's going, that's affected the entire planet and in, in, in increasing ways. So I'm wondering, I guess my question is, who owns this? I mean, it's, it's part and parcel, but in my opinion now, it's sort of the overarching umbrella to what makes a city livable and where you feel like you belong, you feel like you're contributing to a city, that's what makes it smart. So I, I'd love your opinions on where the ownership is or how it might be changing or not. Thank you. Michael, I'm going to go to you as the only city official here officially on the, on the panel. 
<laughs> uh, in Las Vegas, the people own the data. The, the data is owned by the city, but the city is run by elected officials, but the elected officials are put there by the people. So again, that's why we are transparent and provide all the data sets on the data we collect transparently to the population. Are you doing anything to enhance the sense of belonging that was mentioned for the citizens? Will they, do they feel a greater affinity for the city as a result of these technology improvements? I think it's an evolving process. We do data academies now where we actually bring residents down and explain data and, and basic data science. Um, we have other sections of the population that are data scientists and so they're all using it in different facets. But it's so early in the process that it's still an evolving role. We need to do more about outreach. And, and so it's difficult to deploy new systems, do outreach, and, and as well as describe what these things do. A lot of what we're focused on right now is creating efficiencies. And what we really didn't discuss on, is, is look, and, and how we sort of see it is that we need to build Las Vegas for the future. Having these type of technologies, building the amenities, will hopefully make our city more attractive than some of the other great cities in the world. Um, we want all cities to prosper, but we want ours to be more prosperous. Um, and so we hope that this technology creates community and, and gravitates people to have a sense of belonging, to want to be in Las Vegas. There's so much more than what most people know about Las Vegas um, that by building these systems and making the city a better place, Hopefully they'll see that when they come and visit and, and stay. Excellent. Great. Thanks. Um, right here up front, Chris. Chris McRae. So uh, last week, Joseph Nye was speaking here about his new book on moral sentiments. And I have a similar question that I asked him, which is, if the sustainability development goals are the most urgent goals over the next decade, uh, do you have any solutions coming basically from super city engineering which we could sort of dream about, share, and then work out how to do? Uh, basically, Joseph Nye's answer to that question was, we will have to have coalitions across countries. I mean, America only has one city with over 10 million population, whereas Asia has maybe 30 of those. So, so there are these different contexts which if we're going to solve climate and other things like that, maybe we need to take this in a hugely important subject of how all the technologies work for citizens, but find a way to uh, come up with some really exciting projects that everyone can get involved with. That was, seems more of a statement than a question, but, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 think, I, I think the panel would agree that sustainability and resilience are really critical elements of, of the smart city technologies that are being deployed, and, and more needs to be done. I think Abba also spoke about that. I could just say that you know, sustainable development goals are so intricately linked with smart cities and you know the whole digital revolution and i mean if you just started looking at water resource management through sensors just looking at you know um, utility management bringing down um, carbon dioxide um, emissions through smart mobility smart transport all of those contribute to um, the sustainable development goals. So, I mean, that's one reason that we do want cities to leapfrog and use this new digital technology so that we can move towards the SDGs. Great. I saw a bunch of other hands 
this young woman here in the front, um, and then let's let's gather up a couple of questions, and we'll see if we can answer them at the same time. And the, so, go ahead, you go first, and then this gentleman over there, and and um, and the gentleman behind him, and we'll take these three questions in one shot. Yeah, I'm Ayn Han, working as an intern at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And uh, because there are almost no regulations about collect collecting and using data in China, so I think they have an advantage of developing AI and data analytics. But other democratic states have difficulty in developing technology faster than China because there are privacy issues. So I'm wondering, uh, you panelists have any opinions about this conflict or problems? Hmm. Thank okay, you. Okay, great. Hold that and, and we'll gather up all these questions and we'll try to um, get them all done. So this gentleman right here. Thank you so much. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for the great presentation and the great panel discussion. My name is Henry. I'm an intern at Asian Development Bank here in Washington, D.C. As more and more cities nowadays that has been experiencing a development in smarter cities, my question is to all the panelists. What is one suggestion you would give to the cities that is going to develop a, newly de a, a new system for the smarter cities? Thank you. Great, great. Great question, and then I think the gentleman behind him, yes. Thank you, my name is Alex Rourke with BDO Public Sector. My question revolves around cybersecurity. Uh, they're increasing the level of nodes on the network increases the, the vulnerability and threat profile, right, that a city may face. You hear what happened with Atlanta being hacked and then getting a uh, ransomware attack, basically. With the added nature of Huawei potentially working closely with the Chinese government, increasing backdoors for nation state actors, your opinions generally on the cybersecurity threat that arise from increasing digitalization of cities, please. Okay, um, let's see if we can knock this off. Um, Sheena, would you be able to talk to the advantages that Chinese um, companies and government may have in the development of technologies due to a lack of um, privacy restrictions. Yeah, I think the um, there is a, an, um, an ongoing technical debate about sort of how much advantage China's approach to data collection provides it. Um, and I think it's it's important to think about it. it's not just the size of the data, but it's also the diversity of the data. So you can scan one face 10 times, and that doesn't help train an algorithm as much as 10 different faces do. Um, and so the diversity of the data actually matters because uh, of the benefits that come with global expansion. And one of the real unanswered questions is who owns the data when China, Chinese companies export this data overseas? And we, haven't, we don't have access to enough of the contracts to know what those, those contracts specified about data ownership and data usage. Um, so I think that's um, a really big unanswered question that will affect the answer. So I'm afraid I can, that's how I'd think about it, but I don't have a clear uh, sort of simple answer to give you. So we'll see through the test of time, I think is what you're saying. I think so. Yes. Um, I want to go to APA, um, just due to time constraints. Could you, the one recommendation that you would give to countries or cities? I'll actually give two recommendations. <laughs> 
And the first one is, you know, precisely what problem are you looking to solve? And once you know that, then you go into what smart city technology I can apply and what's the cheapest out there or what can I handle. But a really as important a suggestion is, do you have the human capital? Do you have capacity in your people and in your institutions to actually implement this digital transformation? Thank you. Thank you, Ava. And the last question that we're going to be able to take is on the cybersecurity threat of these digital technologies. And Michelle, do you have uh, sure. something you could share on that? Yeah. So um, again, coming from the city, and um, I guess just like Atlanta, all cities. Uh, I mean, I can definitely speak for North America and our democratic uh, countries that they are all being hit with ransomware. And um, it's obviously really delicate for politicians. They aren't really obviously gonna go out and announce that. It's such a concern to residents. Um, so the issue is that um, I know most of them are either hiring a CISO or uh, a chief, um, the city of Toronto just hired one, um, and most of the larger cities are, or the smaller cities are having a person in place that would be able to deal with that. Um, I'm sure Michael would say the same. So we have somebody in the cities that are trying to deal with it um, and trying to prevent it, but what we're hearing is that instead of at the, at the national, I guess being a sub-national, um, being a sub-actor on in, the, in our countries that we're the first up uh, in that uh, you know, line of defense, we're, we're usually the first to be attacked, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so I think it's definitely a very critical and relevant question that you're asking. And at the same time, um, it's again, something that's in progress and organic because as soon as we figure out one solution, then of course uh, the, the bad people are figuring out another. So. So again, and more to come on that space, but clearly many threats uh, and an increasing number of threats due to the digital deployments. I'm afraid that's all the time we have today. Obviously, we could go on for quite a bit longer. I want to thank you all for joining. I want to join me in thanking the panel for such great contributions. Thank you very much.